My name is Sam Davidson. Um, I went to Willow Bend in high school, so I was involved in the youth group here. Uh, my parents go here, Steve and Julie Davidson. They're over here, if you know them. Um, I'm assuming that the, the one important piece is that my fiance, new fiance, is also here. So we are getting married in May, and her name is Alexis. Um, so yeah, like Chad said, I went to Baylor for my undergrad. Um, I don't want to talk about the Cotton Bowl, so don't ask me about it. Uh, and I'm now at Truett Seminary, um, which is attached to Baylor, working on my Master's of Divinity. Um, and I am the, the assistant college pastor at First Baptist Woodway. And uh, this past summer, as my boss and I were finalizing our sermon series, we decided to go through Second Corinthians because we felt like that was something um, that our students could really benefit from um, us preaching through. And so as we were looking at the preaching schedule for the fall, I saw today's passage, which is 2 Corinthians 12, 1 through 10, and specifically asked if I could preach on this passage. So I did that. This is a sermon that I preached more or less the same, same thing um, earlier in this, uh, this fall. Um, this passage, 2 Corinthians 12, has been one of the most meaningful and transforming passages for me over the last six months or so. Um, it has really transformed the way I see the world in, in a way that no other passage of Scripture ever has. Um, so kind of some background for, for how that came about. This summer, um, my fiance was in Iraq for 10 weeks um, for work for the organization that she works for. Um, they do life-saving heart surgeries for children there, and they train medical staff to do those surgeries. So her whole team is based there, and they had asked her to come over for the summer to help coordinate some interns that were going to be there and to just be able to work with that team face-to-face. -face. So if you've turned on the TV in the last six months, um, you're probably aware that Iraq was not the safest place to be this summer. Um, so on top of the civil war that was happening there, uh, our communication was really bad. There was power outages, so we couldn't talk, and we both did a really poor job of maintaining our relationship. Uh, and so all of this together, the, the kind of constant fears and anxieties in the back of my mind, combined with the relational issues that we were having doing a really poor job of communicating, really all wore on me in a way that I didn't see coming at all. Uh, they wore on me to the point that after a week or two of her being gone, I fell into depression and anxiety um, that I had experienced when I was in high school. I had a prolonged illness, and out of those things kind of stemmed these mental health issues, and I just fell back into those things in a way that I hadn't experienced them or felt them in eight or nine years. Um, totally caught me off guard. I was not expecting that to happen. I thought I was totally stable. I thought I was a mature, emotionally mature adult pastor, had it all together, and it just knocked me off my feet. Um, I was an emotional and spiritual wreck all summer, more often than not. Um, my parents could tell you, because I spent hours and hours on the phone with them, just trying to keep it together, um, that it was, it was really bad. Um, I couldn't focus on my schoolwork. I was taking seminary classes. I couldn't focus on my work at the church. And it was just this overwhelming burden to, to be a pastor, to be a minister to college students while I was myself in complete disarray emotionally and spiritually. Um, so it would have been, obviously, a hard time if I was just going to school, if I was just going to work and trying to make a living. It, it was so bad that some days I, I would come home after those things and I would literally fall on my floor in my bedroom and cry because I was so overwhelmed. I was so powerless to change anything about the situation. So that 
that was, would have been hard enough, but on top of all that, I was still leading this ministry of college students, and I was still being asked to preach every other week. And so there was this burden constantly that I was having to get up every week in front of people and tell them of how good Jesus was while I could barely get out of bed in the morning without falling on the floor in a heap of anxiety. So I felt this burden all summer long, and it culminated one week when I was preparing a sermon one weekend and was just completely overwhelmed in a way that I had never been before. It felt impossible. I was so depressed and so distracted that that I couldn't even hope to think straight. Um, I felt guilty for not handling the situation better. I felt stupid because I couldn't put words on paper to write a sermon, and I felt like a hypocrite because I was standing in front of this group of college students speaking of the things of God when I was in complete shambles. So I ended up having what was essentially a 24-hour panic attack that lasted through that Sunday morning that I, that I had to preach through. And even after I did, there was no relief. There was no feelings of release. It was just failure and inadequacy. It was all I could feel. I, all I could think was that I don't deserve to be in ministry. I'm not good enough. I'm not emotionally stable enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not anything enough to be in ministry. Why has God put me here? So I was legitimately rethinking my entire career, my entire life path and sense of a call to ministry. So I expressed all of these things to my parents that night and then to my boss the next morning. And everything in me was just feeling completely hopeless, completely helpless. But then my mom and my boss, independently of each other, pointed me to this passage that we're going to look at today, to 2 Corinthians 12. And as I read it and spent time meditating on it, God spoke to me in a way that I honestly had never experienced before in Scripture. Um, it, it gave me a hope that I hadn't known, and it started just to completely reshape the way I see myself, the way I see the Lord. So I love this passage. I'm excited to get to talk about it this morning, and my prayer is that God speaks to you in even a fraction of the way that he has spoken to me through this passage. So turn with me, if you will, to Second Corinthians 12. We're going to read verses 1 through 10. 2 Corinthians 12, 1 through 10. Paul says, I must go on boasting. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. To give you a little bit of context for 
what Paul is doing here. I'm going to give you kind of a lightning round version summary of 2 Corinthians up to this point. Um, so Paul has founded the church in Corinth years prior to this. He, he brought the gospel there and he established this body of believers. And he's written them a couple of letters, um, one of which being 1 Corinthians. And then there was another letter in there that got that we don't have that was really the second letter, but it's not 2 Corinthians. It's confusing and not really all that important. So Paul has not been to Corinth in a while, but he's been sending them letters um, addressing some issues of immorality in the church, some confusion about how things should be going, but he hasn't returned to see them in a long time. And while he's been gone, there's been these false apostles coming to Corinth and preaching a different gospel than what Paul taught, trying to discredit Paul's ministry. So these apostles have been boasting in their own power. They have been boasting in their own spiritual abilities and saying, look at us, look at the power that we display, look at the authority that we display, and and leading the Corinthians away from Paul and away from the gospel that Paul has preached there. So what has been happening in chapter 11 leading up to this is that the Corinthians have started to buy into the the gospel that these false apostles have preached, the the self-glorifying ways of these false apostles. And they started questioning Paul as to his authority. So Paul, in chapter 11, basically says, this is dumb. This boasting thing is not productive. It, it means nothing. It proves nothing. But sure, I'll go along and I'll play the little foolish game that these false apostles are playing, and I'll beat them at their own game. So in chapter 11, he lists out a number of things that his opponents had been boasting of, that he had heard word that they were boasting in and pointing to as signs of their authority. And he replies by saying, listing off these things and saying why he is superior even in those things. And at the end of chapter 11, he, he starts boasting about weakness and boasting in weakness for the sake of Christ. And so now in chapter 12 that we're going to look at, he continues both of these themes and they really start to come into focus what he's getting at. So he says, I must go on boasting. And he moves on to visions and revelations. It seems likely, given everything else that he has been responding to, that his opponents, that these false apostles in Corinth, were, were boasting of visions and revelations and mystical experiences that they had been having and pointing to those as signs of spiritual authority. Um, so Paul basically proceeds to one-up them and, and describes his own mystical experience, but all along insisting that there's nothing to be gained by this boast. This is dumb, but I'll beat you at your own game. There's no point in boasting, but just for the sake of argument, I'll show you how I, even if we are going to boast, I'm still superior. And throughout this passage, and really throughout all of 2 Corinthians, and really throughout all of Paul's letters, we see that Paul is just utterly unconcerned with himself. He constantly says there's nothing to be gained by boasting. He doesn't want to talk about himself. And he describes this singularly unique mystical experience, but insists that there is nothing to be gained by it. He doesn't want to dwell on himself because that doesn't build up the church and it takes the focus away from the Lord and puts it on him. I think this is something that we can learn from very quickly before we even get into the vision, which is that there is nothing to be gained in the kingdom by speaking highly of ourselves or our experiences. That there is nothing to be gained by speaking highly of ourselves. And this is completely opposed to every instinct that we have, every natural inclination that we have. I think if we had a vision like the one Paul describes, we would probably go and we would tell everybody that would listen about it. But by speaking about our own spiritual experiences, by speaking about ourselves and how well we're doing or what 
we have experienced, we, we risk taking attention away from the Lord that we think we're talking about. Now, I don't, I don't want to say that we should never share our testimonies or that we should never tell our stories because that there are absolutely, there is absolutely a time and a place for that. But I think the important thing to learn from Paul here before we jump into the vision is that we need to be cautious and aware of how much when we think we're talking about Jesus, we're actually talking about ourselves. Um, it's easy to think that we are sharing the gospel, to, to say that we're sharing our faith, but at the end of the day, we haven't actually talked about anything except ourselves and our experiences. So we're going to come back to, to that point later on, but on to the vision itself in verses 2 through 4. Paul says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up into the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. So this is really kind of weird. Um, it's just kind of a strange description of a strange experience, and it's not immediately apparent what we're supposed to do with it. Um, people will tend to get stuck on this vision and try to figure out what it was, what it meant, why Paul had it, what he's talking about. But Paul really doesn't give us that much to go on, and I think that's kind of the point. Um, I don't want us to get hung up trying to decipher this experience of Paul, but I think there are some clear things that we can draw out from the way he describes it. The first is that he weirdly starts using the third person. Um, he says he knows a man in Christ who, who had this vision. Um, so some people have speculated that Paul actually is describing someone else's experience, another apostle or whoever, somebody that he was traveling with. Um, but given the context of what he's been doing to this point, the general consensus is that Paul's talking about himself, but he's using the third person as a continued attempt to remove attention from himself, to take any attention that would be given to him and instead give glory to God. He's still responding to his opponents ironically. He's still emphasizing how dumb it is to be boasting in himself or in their own powers, but he's beating them at their own foolish game anyway. But he's still, at the same time, refusing to draw attention to himself. And secondly, he doesn't offer any detailed description of the vision, as was probably expected. Um, since Paul is specifically talking about visions, it's probably the, fact, the case that his opponents were boasting in these experiences, as I said, and they were probably willing to give some pretty sweet details about these mystical experiences that they could claim authority from. But again, Paul refuses to indulge in this. Paul refuses to draw attention to himself. He sees no benefit to the community in drawing attention to himself. Boasting about his own personal experience is not profitable for the Corinthian church. So the last point about the vision, before we move on, is the language he uses to describe what happens to him. He says that he was caught up to the third heaven, and he doesn't know if it was an out-of-body experience or what it was. So the verb that he uses, caught up, it's a passive verb. It implies that he was being acted upon, that this was something that happened to him that was out of his control, that was beyond his initiative or anything he was trying to make happen. The vision wasn't a result of Paul's pious prayers or his spiritual expertise. God initiated it, and Paul was merely the recipient. So he's continuing to refuse to boast about the vision. And I think that we should be really mindful about this in our own prayer lives, in our own worship, that we can't kind of work ourselves into 
a spiritual experience, that we can't manipulate ourselves, manipulate our feelings to give us some sort of ecstatic, mystical revelation of God. And that doesn't mean that, that we don't pray and we don't ask God to reveal himself to us because he has promised to do that, but it means that that initiative is always God's and we cannot manipulate our own feelings and we cannot manipulate God in, in order to do that. We cannot make God show himself to us. So for those of us who maybe don't have a lot of emotional, spiritual experiences, it doesn't necessarily mean that we're doing things wrong. All we can do in the end, at the end of the day is ask God to reveal himself to us and trust that he's going to give us what we need, even if it's not exactly what we want. So the third heaven thing sounds pretty strange also, um, but it's pretty straightforward, actually. The Jews had a three-tiered concept of reality. Um, the first tier, the first heaven or the first atmosphere was here on the ground around us, where we are, what we see. Uh, the second was what we see above us, the sky, the stars, the clouds. And then the third heaven was the highest heaven, the holiest heaven was beyond that where God dwells. And so Paul says he's caught up into that heaven, into the third heaven, into the place where God dwells, and, and he hears things that are so great that human beings aren't even allowed to repeat them. And yet he continues to refuse to boast about it. He continues to, to attribute all initiative only to the Lord and not anything about himself. He says that if he must boast, he will boast only in his weaknesses, in verse 6, so that no glory will be given to him. He doesn't want anyone to, to, to hear or see anything about him except the gospel that he preaches. He, he doesn't want attention to be put on him. He doesn't want focus to be put on anything about him except the gospel that he preaches. He's so consumed with the glory of the gospel and with the glory of God that he refuses to boast in any way because the validation of Paul's ministry doesn't come from a vision. It doesn't come from anything else about himself that he could point to or boast in and say, look how great I am. His validation comes only from the gospel that he preaches that has established the Corinthian church and that has brought the Corinthians to faith. This is not how we speak about ourselves most of the time, is it? Somehow, even when we're proclaiming the gospel or speaking of Jesus or sharing our faith, we almost always end up focused on ourselves and how well we're doing and how much we've changed and how many good feelings Jesus gives us. But for Paul, this was never an option. He goes along with, with his opponents and he plays the boasting game to make a point. But throughout the whole thing, he's saying how it's foolish and there's nothing to be gained by it. And he's speaking like a fool and he is uncomfortable with all of it. We tell our students all the time in Waco that if we are followers of Jesus Christ, we are no longer the main characters of our story. He is. If we are followers of Jesus Christ, we are no longer the main characters of our story or our lives. He is. Paul has no desire to be the main character of his story. He wants to point people to Jesus without any attention being drawn to himself. Is this, is this our ultimate desire if we're honest with ourselves on a daily, moment-by-moment basis? Or are we more like the false apostles in Corinth, more concerned to elevate ourselves, to make ourselves look spiritually mature or spiritually healthy than we are with pointing people to Jesus Christ? And again, there's more to this question, and that's where we're going to land as we get to the end of this passage. So let's keep moving. Verses 7 and 8. 
So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should lead me. So as a result of the revelations that, that Paul has, he's given a thorn in his side. It's unclear exactly what the thorn is, but, but Paul says that its purpose was to prevent him from becoming conceited, to prevent him from becoming prideful about the vision, to keep him in a place of humility where he could never be convinced that he was operating out of his own abilities or his own strength or his own power. He doesn't say what the thorn is, uh, but, but from the metaphor that he uses of the thorn, uh, it's evident that there, it's something nagging, it's something painful and annoying that just won't go away. And since he doesn't identify it, it, it seems likely that, that the Corinthians knew would have known what he was talking about. That when he referenced the thorn in his side, they would have immediately said, oh, right, this about Paul. And it's probably the case that his opponents, who were trying to discredit him, were pointing to the same thing and saying, look, look how weak Paul is. He has this. And the phrase, in the flesh, um, at least seems to potentially imply that it was some kind of physical condition, um, which could have been related to the fact Paul says earlier in 2 Corinthians something about the meekness of his physical presence with the Corinthians. So he's alluded to something physical that, that seems to make him appear weak. Some of the more prominent theories are bad eyesight, which there are references to in other letters. Paul seems to say something about his bad vision, um, a chronic disease, or, or some sort of physical condition that caused uh, like a disfigurement. Um, it may also have been a psychological struggle of some kind, depression or anxiety or something along those lines. Um, there's an opinion that, that the thorn is a sin struggle that Paul is unable to leave behind, or that it's just the constant persecution that he's facing everywhere he goes throughout his life and ministry. We can't know what the thorn is, but, but whatever it is, it's clear that it's something that Paul perceived as debilitating to his life and to his ministry. It, it was something that, that brought him low, that enforced humility for him. But as we will see, it, became, it also becomes a reminder of God's grace and power. So initially, Paul pleads with the Lord for it to be removed. He pleads three times over and over again for the Lord to take this thorn away. He obviously did not see the thorn as something valuable, as something that could be good in any way, but only as something that was causing pain and preventing him from being all that he thought he could be or, or the person that he thought he could be or being as effective as he thought he should be. He thought that the thorn would, would interfere with his ministry, that it would prevent him from doing what he was called to do, that people would think less of him, that it would be a hindrance to his work. And we do this too. We don't value pain. We don't value struggle when it's in the present. We assume that all hard things that all pain are against God's will and can't be used by him as long as they're still going on. We're able to, to look back at our past and see the way that, that the hard times served to, to grow us or to benefit us or to benefit others or to glorify the Lord. But when it's in the present, we, we don't have that kind of perspective and we don't have that kind of faith to believe that God is doing something now. We think that we always know what is best for us and what's best for God really. We pray and we say, hey, God, if I could just whatever, 
if I was just a better public speaker, if I could just kick this habit, if I could just get over this addiction, if I just had more resources, if I just had a better job, if I could just move up the ladder a little bit more, if my marriage was just a little bit happier, then I could be whatever. If I could just fill in the blank. But Paul's entire outlook is transformed by the Lord's response to him in verse 9, as ours should be. Verse 9. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. The best definition of grace that I've ever read is that grace is the power of God that comes as sheer gift. Grace is the power of God that comes as sheer gift to us. And Jesus is reply to Paul here is the climax of this passage and everything leading up to it, really of all of 2 Corinthians. The thorn in Paul's side will not prevent him from doing what God has called him to do. It will humble him. It will prevent him from any illusions that he is strong enough to do anything out of his own strength, out of his own ability. But it will not hinder his mission. It will not keep him from proclaiming the gospel and pointing people to Jesus Christ. It will not condemn him. It will not make him useless. It will not be the end of Paul because the grace of Jesus Christ is sufficient for him. And not only this, but the power of God is made perfect in his weakness. In the Greek, the word translated as made perfect, and I love this, it's the same, the same verb that Jesus cries out with his last breath on the cross when he says, it is finished. It's, it's a verb that we don't have a direct correlate for in English, but it has this depth of meaning of, of completion, wholeness, finished perfection, as things should be in their fullness. And so the power of God and the grace of Christ are being brought to completion, are, are made whole and demonstrated in their fullness in human weakness. They're not just made more obvious, though they are made more obvious too. And this isn't just a nice idea, although it is an idea with the potential to change everything. It's a reality, and it is the truth of the way things are that the power of God is brought to completion in human weakness. And it's a present tense verb. It's an ongoing action. Jesus doesn't say to Paul, my power was made perfect for you on the day of your salvation. Now it's time for you to get your stuff together and pull yourself up by your bootstraps. His power is continually being made perfect, continually coming to its fullness in Paul's weakness and in ours. The thorn that, that Paul thought was a tool of the enemy, that was a messenger of Satan that he thought would destroy him and prevent him from proclaiming the gospel, is actually an avenue for God's power to operate more effectively than it would have otherwise. That's staggering. It is an avenue for God's power to operate more effectively, not just as effectively, not almost as effectively, more so. And that is why Paul boasts in his weaknesses, why he refuses to draw attention to himself and insists that there is nothing to be gained by boasting in himself. Paul boasts in his weaknesses because it is in those weaknesses that God's power is put on display and his glory is shown more fully. But all of this it makes no sense unless Jesus Christ and his all-sufficient grace are the center and the focal point of our lives. 
if we are the main characters of our stories, if we are the main characters of our lives, this will never be true for us. We won't boast in our weaknesses. We won't speak about our failures, our inadequacies, because our primary concern will never be God. Our primary concern will only ever be ourselves and building up our own kingdom instead of his. If we are telling our stories with ourselves in the center and living our lives with ourselves in the center and Jesus on the periphery as a supporting character, we will never boast in our weaknesses and his power. We will never know his power. We will only ever know our own power and our power will fail in the end every single time. We will only ever hide our weaknesses and we will cover up our failures for fear of looking foolish to the world. But this is the paradox, the glory, and the freedom of the cross, that weakness is the vehicle by which God's grace and Christ's power are made manifest. Because of the cross of Jesus Christ, everything that we think we know about the way the world works is flipped right upside down on its head. Paul says to the Corinthians in his first letter to them that we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So Paul boasts in his weaknesses rather than in his strengths. He boasts in weakness rather than strength. He doesn't do kind of a humble brag kind of thing where he talks about how much good he's done in the world and how many people he's brought to Christ and how many community service hours he's done and then tack on at the end, but I couldn't do it without Jesus. He boasts only in his weakness because the gospel is not that if you try hard enough and earn enough and get close enough that God will be nice enough to accept you. The gospel of Jesus Christ is that in his initiative, in his love, his grace, his power, he has died the death that we should have died. And in his resurrection, he has overcome sin, overcome brokenness, and overcome death itself. And he has saved us. Not because of anything that we do, but because of his love, because of his grace, because of what he has done. God's power is not brought to perfection in our strength, our wisdom, or our abilities. It's not. The resurrection power of Jesus Christ operates to its fullness, to its perfection in human weakness and human frailty and human brokenness. And that is why we can boast in our weaknesses. Because Paul says that it is in our weakness that the power of Christ may rest upon us. So that the power of Christ may rest upon me. This is why Paul boasts in his weaknesses. It's the reason that he refuses to draw attention to himself and insists on pointing away from himself to Jesus Christ so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. If Paul were boasting in his strengths, if he were boasting in his abilities, if he was preaching his own wisdom, if he was uplifting himself to the Corinthians, it would cancel out the witness to the power of God. If Paul were preaching out of his own ability, if he was living out of his own strength, he would be powerless. But he is most powerful when he is least reliant on himself, as are we. Like Paul, we, we have illusions of strength when things are going pretty well. We, we believe the hype about ourselves when, when people admire us. We convince ourselves that, that, that we're, pretty, we're pretty okay, and we really 
only need Jesus for the big stuff, to kind of tie the loose ends together, to put us over the top that we couldn't quite get to. But when our weakness is blatant, when it is glaring and it threatens to consume everything that we are, we can't help but be reminded of our utter dependence on the grace of God. And like Paul, God may allow that weakness and that pain to continue for a season in order to remind us of that dependence. And there's really no greater gift that he could give us than to remind us of who we are and our need for his radical grace. Even the language that Paul uses to talk about the power of Christ is so rich in meaning. He says that he will boast in his weaknesses that the power of Christ may rest upon him. And this language of resting is tabernacle language. In the Old Testament, God, while the Israelites were in the wilderness, he would come and he would dwell with them. He would give them his presence in the tabernacle. And with, with that presence came an assurance of his power, of his preservation with them. In John 1, we, we read that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Literally, that, that Greek reads something like, the word became flesh and pitched his tent with us. He set up camp with us. So in the Old Testament, God comes and he dwells with the Israelites in the wilderness. In the incarnation, Jesus comes to us and he sets up camp with us in the midst of our sin and our brokenness. And now in the resurrection, Jesus Christ comes and he pitches his tent with believers in the midst of our weakness. And that is a gospel that is worth proclaiming, that is worth celebrating. Jesus does not wait for us to get our lives together and our junk together and then come and join him. He comes to us and he sets up camp with us in the midst of our brokenness and our hurt and our sin and our affliction, and he promises that his grace is sufficient to do what he calls us to do. That there is no weakness too far gone, that there is no pain unredeemable. Verse 10. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. God's power is most evident when it is demonstrated through, in, and in spite of the weakness of his people. And we get this backwards so often. We think that we have to portray an image of ourselves individually and as a church body that says we have things together. We, we were messed up back then, and now we're, we're good. But this is so backwards to the way that Paul speaks of grace, to the way that we see grace in Scripture now, we don't, we don't celebrate pain. We don't celebrate weaknesses or struggles for their own sake. God doesn't ask us to just sit and be happy with our weakness, to sit and be happy with our struggles, with our pain and our shortcomings. More often than not, he calls us to address them and he calls us to grow in them. But we don't need to fear those things. We don't need to hide them. We don't have to be ashamed of them. We can boast in them. We can boast in our weakness because it is when we are most frail, most helpless, most powerless, and most completely aware of that fact that the grace of Jesus Christ is put most clearly on display. There's a well-known saying of John Piper. It says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And I think in light of 2 Corinthians 12, we, we could just as well, if not better, say God is most glorified in us when we are most dependent on him. And that is exactly what Paul is saying. 
But again, we can only rejoice in this fact. We can only accept this fact and celebrate it if we have rightly seen ourselves before God. We can only rest in the fact that the grace of Jesus Christ is sufficient in our weakness if we understand that he is everything. That he has become the main character of our stories. We are not the main characters of our stories or our lives. Jesus does not come to you and ask if he can please be a part of what you're doing in the world. If he can please be a part of your life. That's a lie that we have been fed. Jesus is the risen Lord over all of creation who is redeeming all things and restoring all things to himself. And he invites us to come along with him and be a part of what he is doing in the world. And he promises that no weakness, no inadequacy, no scars, no failures, no mental health issues will disqualify you from following after him. Our lives are bound up in Christ and nothing else matters except his grace, his power, and his glory. And it's only in light of that fact that it makes sense to boast in our weakness. If we have stopped making gods out of ourselves and our own righteousness, if we stopped making gods out of ourselves, out of our own righteousness. Ultimately, this, this is what prevents us from boasting in weakness. This is why this is not a reality for us. Our pride and our desire to justify ourselves before God and before others. We paint a picture individually and collectively that says, I need a little help now and then, but overall, I'm pretty all right. And we spend so much time doing that, that we convince ourselves that that is true. And you can see this by the way that we tell our stories most of the time. When we hear testimonies, they they usually end up being more about us than about the Jesus that saved us, don't they? We tell people about how sinful we were and how bad we were for a long time, and then we met Jesus, and Jesus saved us, and how much we've turned our lives around since then. We don't talk about our continued weaknesses. We don't talk about how faithful Jesus is in spite of us, not because of us, not because of our efforts, in spite of us. When was the last time that you boasted in your weakness? Have you ever done that? Have, do we trust and understand the grace of Jesus Christ enough to do that? What if, what if we did? What if instead of insisting that we're doing pretty well all the time, we were honest with our weakness and we boasted in it so that the power of Christ would rest upon us? What if when we told our stories, we were honest enough with ourselves and with those around us to speak of our weaknesses so that we can then point to Jesus and say, but his grace is sufficient in all things and his power is being made perfect in my weakness to the glory of God. So what, what is your thorn? What is it that no matter what you seem to do, no matter how much you pray, no matter how hard you try, just won't go away? What prevents you from doing all that you think you could do or being the person that you think you should be? Is it depression and anxiety like me? The grace of Jesus Christ is sufficient for you. Is it addiction to drugs, to alcohol, to pornography? The grace of Jesus Christ is sufficient for you. Is it wounds of your past that you just can't get by or let go? The grace of Jesus Christ is sufficient for you. 
Is it failure that you just can't seem to get through? The power of God is being made perfect in your weakness. There is no weakness that his grace is not sufficient to overcome, to work in, to work through. For his glory and our good. That, that has to be the focus. The, 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 the point of grace is not that we are able to overcome our demons and just live a happier life. That's not what is going on. This is not a spiritualized version of the prosperity gospel that says God just wants you to be happy. That's God's number one priority. The power of God is made perfect. The grace of Jesus Christ is sufficient in our weakness as we proclaim his gospel, as we seek his kingdom. Like Paul Our instinct is to pray for what we think we need, to pray for the thorn and the pain to go away right now. God, take this away. This can't be good. This can't have anything of your will about it. But maybe like Paul, the Lord allows the thorn to remain in this season so that we can be humbled and that we can know his power instead of our own. Because our power will fail in the end every time, no matter what it may look like where you are right now, whether you are at the bottom or you are at the top, your power will fail you. I think we have catastrophically misunderstood what grace is. And so we don't expect to encounter it. We don't expect to find it in our weaknesses and our pains. We almost always talk about grace as if it has to do exclusively with forgiveness of sins. But that only scratches the surface of what grace is is as we see in 2 Corinthians. If grace is the power of God given as sheer gift to us, then we have to understand everything, literally everything through that lens. Everything we have, everything we are is grace. Grace is not just forgiveness, and so grace doesn't stop once you're saved. Grace and gospel are not words that only applied to you before conversion. Those two things, grace and the gospel of Jesus Christ, are the power of God poured out on us, giving us hope and meaning in life every moment of every day. Everything is grace. Our existence, the fact that we continue to exist. You didn't make yourself. You may have made your own money. You didn't do that on your own. And you certainly didn't make yourself be born and exist in this world. The fact that you exist is by the grace of God. The fact that we are being sanctified and made gradually more like Christ is grace. And it's only when we begin to understand this that we can embrace and boast in our weaknesses and revel in the power of Jesus Christ instead of our own always failing power. In the depths of of my depression of my despair, my hopelessness, the feelings of inadequacies, the grace of Jesus Christ was, is, and ever will be sufficient for me, even if those things are not taken away from me until the day that I see him face to face. In your addictions, in your failures, in your sinfulness and absolute brokenness, the grace of Jesus Christ was, is, and ever will be sufficient for you. His power is being made perfect through your weakness. That is the gospel that we proclaim, a gospel that we can love, that we can live in light of every moment of every day. Will you pray with me?